Welcome to Econ Talk, Conversations for the Curious, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Shalem College in Jerusalem and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Go to econtalk.org where you can subscribe, comment on this episode, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives with every episode we've done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is April 16th, 2021, and my guest is behavioral scientist and author Katie Milkman. She is the James G. Dining Professor at the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania, and the author of How to Change, The Science of Getting from Where You Are to Where You Want to Be, which is our topic for today. Katie, welcome to EconTalk. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So these kind of books, I have to confess, listeners, I'm a little bit skeptical of, of some of them. And some of the findings of them. But I have to also confess that they're very seductive. You know, you open a book like this and you think, I'm going to change my life. I really am. That's going to tell me how to do it. Do you think your book delivers on that promise? Is does does Do you offer some actual tangible advice that's helpful? I hope so. And I should tell you, I am also very skeptical of these kinds of books, which is the reason that I wrote this one. I'm frustrated by the self-help section in general, uh, which is full of so many gurus. And I've spent the last 20 years studying the science of change and felt like it would be really refreshing to try to write a book that had a basis in evidence um, and that maybe could actually help people. And I will say, you know, I do not think that this book is going to take someone who's really, you know, can't get anything done and turn them into a wonderkin. It, that's not, it's not reasonable, but I hope, you know, if it makes people five to 15% more effective at achieving their goals, to me, that would be a huge win. And I think that's kind of what the different scientific principles suggest as possible, right? So each of the different insights that I share from different studies, none of them is turning someone who is getting, you know, C minuses into an A plus student or a valedictorian. None of them is turning someone who is struggling to be, you know, be decent at the piano into a world-class pianist. Rather, they're they're moving you up and um, significantly and, and helping. So I hope this will deliver on that promise. I think it can help people change better than any other book I've read, which is why I wanted to write it. So let's talk about uh, willpower or self, what I'm, I'm going to think of as self-mastery. Um, what are your thoughts on that in general? Obviously, in many ways, that's what your book's about, how to overcome our personal shortcomings, uh, personality traits we might have that we think keep us from getting to where we want to be. Uh, how do you think about that, general, that problem generally? So the willpower problems are a really big one. I think too often we know from evidence people think, you know, Nike's right and I can just do it and that's just garbage. Um, we aren't good at pushing through. And so we need tricks and tools and strategies. And actually, you know, it, it's, I think, funny because economists think about this in terms of policymakers and how can policymakers um, design systems that will set people up for success when it comes to say saving for retirement let you know let's put a social security system in place let's have 401ks that are tax advantaged or um you know let's let's try to prevent people from using drugs by putting them in jail if they do <laughs> and so um there's a lot of systems that are set up by policymakers to try to help with self-control problems so people don't get into these very bad situations but we ourselves have some ability to set systems up 
that also support success individually. Um, and we can take sort of a hint from what works when someone else is trying to help and, and use those same tools. So in the book, I write about two different strategies, both the carrot and the stick for trying to tackle willpower problems. So the stick looks a lot like a traditional strategy that um, a manager or a policymaker might set up for you to try to restrict decisions. And um, I talk about commitment devices which were first um, written about by uh, Robert Strauss many years ago. And, uh, you know, Schilling and Thaler have written about, about this idea. And, and the idea is that we actually, if we recognize that we have willpower problems, we can set up systems that will constrain our future selves. So it can be anything from um, setting up fines that you'll impose on yourself using a third-party website. There are websites like Stick and BeMinder that let you find yourself if you're not achieving your goals and define a referee who will hold you accountable to, um, you know, signing yourself for self-exclusion get lists at a gambling uh, establishment or at all gambling establishments in your state or buying smaller plates. So there are all different ways that we can use commitment devices to try to set ourselves up for success and constrain our future decisions. Um, the other way is is really the carrot. So commitment devices are the stick. Like, let's create penalties and restrictions so that our future self won't make bad decisions. The carrot is, let's actually figure out ways to make it more enjoyable in the moment. And uh, that way, your willpower won't be needed to do the thing that's good for you. So how do we turn the chore that willpower says, like, oh, I, you know, I can't drag myself to the gym. I can't be more productive today. I can't stay off social media. How can you turn that chore into a pleasure so that it's instantly gratifying? Um, and I write about a number of different strategies ranging from gamification, which doesn't always work. And there's lots of cautionary tales in there about that too, um, to something I call temptation bundling that I've studied where the, the basic idea is to, um, it's sort of, it's, it's similar in a way to commitment device. It's to link something inherently tempting and enjoyable with a thing you know you should do more of. So I use it and have studied it um, with the gym. So only let yourself say, binge watch your favorite TV show while you're exercising. You can find that you'll actually start craving trips to the gym to find out what happens next to your favorite characters stop wasting time at home binge watching that show and uh you know time will fly while you're exercising because you're so engrossed so that's an example but you can use it in other ways too um linking your favorite podcast for your podcast listeners with doing household chores like laundry or, or cooking meals can make that a pleasure uh you can do it with um food linking your favorite say restaurant that isn't super healthy was spending time with a difficult relative you should see more of or picking up your favorite Starbucks treat on the way to hit the books at the libraries when I talk to my students about so there's all different ways to do that and I think just the insight that if we make it more fun to pursue our goals that we're much more likely to actually stick to them because we care about that present value that instant gratification will get. And so those, that's sort of the carrot and the stick end of willpower. Instead of just saying, I'm going to grin and bear it, we need to be strategic and set up systems that make it more likely we'll succeed. So I really like the temptation bundling one, I, although I'm always worried in this, in this kind of uh, exercise whether, you know, the, oh, that's the one that I think kind of works for me. So that's why. <laughs> but, but I think it's an interesting, uh, you know, the challenge with that for me is that, you know, if you're not careful you end up multitasking and and missing the experience of life because you're kind of so you take somebody you don't like to your favorite restaurant if that's what you meant rather than reward yourself right you take someone you're obligated to go to and then you kind of ruin both you have a horrible time you, the restaurant you used to love you can't enjoy it anymore so I think there is that's a funny you know, it's humor but but I do think there's an issue there that you know 
I, I like the idea that I could just be in the moment and experience the exercise even though I don't love it, right? And I think that's what I aspire to, but realistically, I know that's often not who I am. And so these kind of tricks where we, quote, fool ourselves, uh, they kind of infantilize my, <laughs> me a little bit. And I, I do kind of worry about the impact on my own self-respect, but I do want to be thinner, say. So it's, it's tricky. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, most of the people I talk to who have used these techniques uh, haven't given me that feedback that it feels like they're infantilizing themselves. I think if someone else imposes it on you, and that's exactly oh, sure. what I talk about with gamification and how it can backfire, and there's research showing that um, if a, an employer tries to gamify, say, sales calls, mm -hmm. uh, it actually doesn't seem to work that well if it feels imposed by the organization as like some... As, as you say, infantilized, you know, technique to, to get you to achieve those goals. But if we opt in, if we elect to do it, if we're using these tools to help ourselves, we don't generally see that kind of backlash because people are saying, hey, like, I want to do this and this is fun for me. And it can be tailored. You make sure it actually is something you enjoy. I'm thinking about Headspace, uh, which an app I don't, I don't use. I, I tried it for a while, I, and I, I didn't particularly like it. But a lot of people I know love Headspace as a way to get them to meditate. And, and they tell me that, yeah, and, and, you know, I do it every day because it gives me like a badge. It's a gamification, you know, a piece of gamification. It gives me a badge. It tells, it congratulates me, thinking you're feeling grateful to an algorithm. It's not really a person. <laughs> And it but seems that, to I think be, that's a great example of how it works for them, yes, but it doesn't exactly. work for you when they've elected to use it and you've elected not to. And I, I think that's actually really a critical point when it comes to what's fun because it differs person to person. And if it's not working for you, like if you're like, this is ridiculous, I hate the badges. It's so, I'm not five, um, then it's not going to be effective. And, and we each have to find the way that, the, you know, the carrot works for us. Yeah, I just, it's working for them. Yeah, but it, it's a little ironic, right? Meditation is supposed to have you enjoy the moment, not worry about whether it's doing anything. And yet we have all this anxiety. My meditation is not succeeding. You know, it's that kind of uh, There are so thing. many things like that in life. <laughs> Let's talk about uh, the economist uh, worldview a little bit because you've, you've implicitly touched on it. Um, and I think about this a lot. Economists stereotypically treat people as rational. It's, it's, you know, we understand, I think a good economist understands that it's a framework, not a perfect description of reality. But it's a very strange thing, you know, whether you're an economist or not, think about why it is that you can't just, quote, convince yourself to do the right thing if you really want it, right? If you think that you want to be thinner or exercise more or spend more time with your elderly parents or whatever is the good deed you want, that's what you want. Why do you have to trick yourself, right? Why can't you just say, I'm going to do it because that's what I want? Does, do you ever think about that? A lot. And I'll tell you, um, I was going to be an economics major as an undergraduate, and I encountered the rational actor model, and I uh, decided to say, switch to engineering. I took summer classes to get out of this field that somehow didn't appreciate what a human looked like. Uh, I was looking around at my college roommates and myself, and I was like, what? <laughs> This is not right. Uh, so I, act, I actually think um, one of the most exciting things about economics is the growth and appreciation that there are these very systematic and predictable ways in which we deviate from the rational actor model, present bias being and hyperbolic discounting, um, as David Leibson has you know, put together a beautiful theory of this, I think is one of the most important insights that, that leads to the most improvement in predictive power, maybe prospect theory. We could argue about whether that's more important, but... 
but both are really important and they punch a hole in this idea that people can get where they want to be by just grinning and, and gritting through. Uh, you know, we can debate whether or not it's like evolutionarily adaptive or was once to mm-hmm. go for the, yeah. the thing that's instantly gratifying. You could imagine how, you know, thousands of years ago, that might've been a really good system to grab the treat you can get now and not worry about the future. But um, it's the equipment we're stuck with. <laughs> it's how we optimize in reality. And, and because that's our reality and because these are the, the situations we face, I think a, a better way to move forward is to recognize it and then figure out, okay, how do we work within the constraints of what, what, what equipment we've got um, and what self-control we've got and, and succeed more. But it is a, a fundamental puzzle, whether you're an economist or not, I think, to think about why it, it is that oh, – you, what do you call it? Pushing through. You know, it's um, – yeah, I think about it, my own shortcomings, stress over getting to the airport, say. And I know we're not going to be late, right? <laughs> I miss that stress, I will admit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We've, we've, it's I've, been a long time yeah. since I've rushed to the airport. I know. Isn't that interesting? And, and I, I thought about that the other day. I'm about to start traveling again on an airplane for the first time in 15 months. Congratulations. And, thank you. But I take uh, it you're vaccinated. I am, twice. Congratulations um, on that, too. Yeah, it's awesome. But – why is it that when I'm, you know, in line at the, to check in, and I'm really not going to miss my flight? I, I've never missed. Uh, I don't think I've ever missed a flight, partly because I'm so anxious about it. But, but <laughs> I, I could be less anxious and just say to myself, "Why is that? I can't convince myself." I think that's a a piece of the human experience that that we all, I think, struggle with. In that, I think most of us just say, "Well, I'll just tell myself that it's not anything to worry about." And that doesn't work. And the fact that it doesn't work is so shocking. It's so shocking that we continue to do it, most of us. I think we continue to say, well, I'll just tell myself not to worry about this or not to be paranoid about this or not to be stressed out about this. It took me a long, long time. I used to get nervous before, say, giving a lecture. I still get a little nervous, but they usually go pretty well. So why am I so nervous? And it's a habit that I've you know, ingrained in myself that's hard to escape. And a lot of your book is about that, is about breaking habits or creating new ones or better ones. I just think it's interesting to think about why that's, I mean, we all know it's hard. It shouldn't be, you'd think, but it is. Yeah, and I mean, I think this just comes back to the fact that we, um, we're we not perfectly optimizing creatures. There are all of these other things going on and and other ways that we've been built and designed and anxiety obviously serves a function right it's like highly motivating yeah <laughs> but um and it's not a thing we can turn off because that's not the way we're built and you know we share anxiety with our with our <laughs> reptilian ancestors presumably yeah. um i think it's really interesting uh you're making me i, I want to just plug a friend's book actually i don't know if you know ethan cross he wrote a, a brilliant book called chatter he's a psychologist at the university of michigan and it's really all about that self-talk and sort of what he's learned through his research about how to be more effective in our self-talk and one really interesting key insight that comes out actually in a chapter of my book as well where i'm talking about confidence and that confidence actually can be a barrier to achieving our goals he finds it can be really helpful to use the the third person. So when we um, are talking to ourselves, we do better. <laughs> and instead of saying like, um, you know, I can do it, I can do it. And you say, you know, you can do it, Katie, and here's how you're going to do it. And that distance from yourself seems to be effective. Um, the way it relates to what I wrote about is some research on the power of actually being a mentor to other people and how that actually builds your own confidence and helps you dredge up insights about what might work 
when you're trying to achieve the same goal as whoever you're coaching. Uh, and it also has this saying is believing effect. Like once you say it to yourself, you're more likely to follow through. Um, I think all of those things are ways that we can distance ourselves uh, from whatever challenges we face and sort of build our confidence, overcome emotional challenges and be more effective. But you're right. These, these things are puzzling and interesting. And it's what got me interested in this field is that we are, we are not perfect systems. We're not perfect optimizers. Uh, and, and so like, what are the constraints? And anyway, I could go on. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I'm going to let you in a minute, but I, I want to ask you first to think about, um, you know, I haven't thought about this much, but your book prompts me to think about it. You know, religion and philosophy have thought about these problems for a long time before economists came along and before psychologists or behavioral economists came along. And they basically talk about the challenges of, you could call it temptation, certainly self-awareness, uh, uh, an urge to, to, to sin in the religious perspective is a, is a very common religious theme that, that we're meant to overcome. We're meant to, you know, we're given these desires, whether they're from God or revolution, doesn't matter, that growing up and becoming uh, a full human being requires overcoming them. Uh, is there reason to think that, that psychology and the the kind of techniques that you that you and your colleagues come up with are better than the wisdom that that we've been endowed with through through you know the ages. That's a great question. I mean, there's wonderful wisdom from philosophy and religion, and I think actually a lot of it is reflected in some of the techniques that behavioral scientists, economists, psychologists, and others have have developed and tested that that really do seem to work. Let me give you some examples of things that are commonalities. We, we talked about commitment devices, pre-commitment. Wedding rings are certainly mm -hmm. a, you know, a, a form of commitment and um, both a visual commitment, you know, like a signal, and also uh, they're costly when you invest in one and give it to someone else. So they're, you know, anyway, whether you agree with the gender point. norms implied and so on, but there, there are these things that that are in our traditions that certainly reflect some of these self-control challenges. Um, I'll give you another example of something that I think uh, I write about in my book that I've studied and that I think is really related to ideas from religion, and that is the fresh start effect. So um, one of the things I studied, and it was inspired by a visit to Google where I was presenting about all these different techniques that could be used to help nudge people to make better decisions. And I got this question from a leader in HR. He said, you know, okay, sold. We should do some of these things to encourage healthier behaviors, more productivity, more retirement savings. It's great. But is there some optimal time to deploy these techniques in our organization? Like when are people most open to change? And that led me down sort of a rabbit hole with uh, some wonderful collaborators studying what we call the fresh start effect, which is this phenomenon that there are moments in our lives uh, where we feel like we're facing a new beginning, a clean slate. The start of New Year is the one we're most familiar with because everybody knows about New Year's resolutions, but there are many of them from the start of spring to um, every Monday to the celebration of a birthday when we feel like, okay, a new chapter is opening in my life. The old me is behind me. The new me is ahead. The new me has a clean slate and can do it. And whatever I failed to do before, that's the old me. The new me's all over it. And we see people pursue goals more. They um, are more likely to create um, goal contracts. They're more likely to search for the term diet on Google. They go to the gym more. We can convince them to sign up at a higher rate for savings plans when we label the date when they're invited to save up as the first day of spring or their birthday. And um, how this relates to religion is that many religions 
have these moments that are, are basically defined to be fresh starts, right? Um, so if you think about Yom Kippur, if you think about Easter, um, if you think about some of the sort of like ablution ceremonies that are used to, to cleanse, um, if you, uh, there's so many different examples uh, confession and forgiveness. These are all related to giving you that clean slate, um, baptism. And, and that psychology is so powerful to help us figure out, okay, yes, things haven't been going well, but I need to get back on the horse and try again. Uh, and I, so anyway, I think that's, that's something philosophers and religions do about. And then, uh, behavioral scientists have gone out and studied and say, oh, like, how does this work? Um, what are the moments that have this power? How do we sort of use it effectively to motivate? I think there's a lot of interplay. And that's just a couple of examples. Yeah, I have to quote Shai Held, um, who says that his favorite day of the year is Yom Kippur, because if you have a really good Yom Kippur, you feel cleansed, you feel ready to start, you feel purified. He said his, his least favorite day is the day after Yom Kippur, because he realizes, <laughs> you know, I didn't change that much. I'm kind of the same person. It's a very short-lived thing, and I think, you know, obviously New Year's resolutions, people are famous for making New Year's resolutions, and they're famous for not keeping them, you know, breaking them. And I think the the fresh start is certainly a way we can jumpstart ourselves, but I'm always struck by how hard it is, Um, and I think— That is why there's a lot more in my book. (laughs) Yeah. Right. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. All it does is get you motivated and started, and then you not you've got to know what to do next, or else you'll be like the ninety percent of Americans whose New Year's resolutions fail. And so, let, let me just riff on that for a minute. I, in, in my experience, as a person who wishes he weighed ten pounds less, uh, it you know reminds me of the old um, Mark Twain. I think you look great. Oh yeah, but that's because you can't see me from the waist from the neck down. <laughs> but I appreciate it. Um, and that you're giving me the wrong signal. Katie, shame on you. You should say, you look terrible. You really should lose 10 I'm not. Well, I will just say, I'm not a huge fan of weight loss goals because, yeah. anyway, yeah. Can, well, that's a well, whole well, other conversation. Maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe not. We'll I, see. I think 10 pounds <laughs> is nothing to worry about. I, right, exactly. And yet, it kind of haunts me. And and I, so my, what the reason well, I, if you want to change, then I hope the book can help you. But I'm just saying, I'm, I, I think you look great. Well, we could talk, maybe we'll talk, maybe we'll use me as a case study for a minute. I, I think- <laughs> In my experience as a as a, a one who wants to lose weight from time to time, my ability to do so is not so closely tied to technique, but to things I don't understand. There's just sometimes when I can avoid temptation, and I, I think it has more to do with what else is going on in my life rather than, oh, here's a great trick, or here's a good diet, or here's an app. I've, I've tried all those in some extent. I'm not obsessive about it, by the way. It's just every once in a while, I think, wouldn't it be great if I lost a little weight? And I, I think, to a large extent, our ability to do that is independent of the technique. I worry, and I worry that, um, you know, they're short-lived, the, the things that seem to work. And you, you recognize that in the book. It's a challenge to create sustained change. It's a big challenge, and um, I think the biggest. And, uh, you know, it's really interesting also to think about I, – I, I think the most interesting frontier is understanding how do we help people get back up after failure. And I write a lot about that in the book, but I hope in the next 20 years, I'll learn a lot more about it. I think it's one of the most interesting areas for research is those recoveries after we have a stumble because stumbles are inevitable. And and we know a little bit about how to recover, but I think we should know more. Um, 
I completely agree with you that the situation is so powerful, right? If maybe that's the most important lesson psychologists have learned in the last 75 years is that the situation is more powerful in many, in many, um, circumstances in the person and, and then the person appreciates, right? And we make this fundamental attribution error that it was you and your willpower, but actually, you know, it was like, no, your, your partner stashed the house full, full of unhealthy snacks. And uh, you had to go on uh, and give a bunch of lectures around the country and people took you out for unhealthy <laughs> meals. And I had a lot of <laughs> stress. Know, time to fit in your workout. <laughs> yeah. And you were really stressed out. Um, yeah. All of those things are so important. And then, but, but then I guess the, the thing I would say, and that I think research points to is, if you know that, then what can you strategically do that, that changes the situation for the better? So can you, if you know your partner uh, tends to stock up on snacks you don't want, can you like do something where you segregate the kitchen and there's your, your stuff and their yeah. stuff and their stuff maybe is even... Like you can get really crazy. You could have them put a lock on their things that they only know the combination to. Yeah. There are literally companies that will sell you those kinds of containers. You know, the, you can be you can be creative. And one one, I think the key lesson of my book is: can you diagnose what's making it hard? Mm-hmm. Can you figure it? Can you figure out what is the barrier? And is there anything you can do because you have agency to think like a policymaker about your own life? and set yourself up more for success. If it's like the gym is too far away, never get there, then, you know, get the exercise equipment at home. If it's not fun to work out, then, you know, figure out what TV show you can binge watch while you're, <laughs> while you're working out on the treadmill. So there's, there are ways, if we just think more strategically, that we can make progress, which is not to say we can make it easy or that everyone will succeed or that other things won't get in the way, but, but we can be strategic. We have some agency there. Yeah. I, you know, the commitment device thing is really tricky. Obviously, not buying unhealthy snacks reduces your chance of eating them in your, at least in, in your own house. At least it would, it would seem that way. I, I'm going to maybe suggest an, uh, an alternative, but, you know, I'm thinking, thinking about my own personal situation and getting some free consulting advice from you, Katie. Um, you know, I have a bunch of shirts that I love. I'll send you the bill later. It's not free. Okay. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> and, and I'll, and I'll, um, yeah, anyway. Uh, I have a I'm bunch kidding. of shirts. I know you are. I have a bunch. I'm just trying to think of a good comeback, and I can't. I apologize. Sorry. Um, <laughs> I was worried you thought I was going to send no. you a bill for a moment there. No, no, no. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't pay it. It's okay. Um, so I have a bunch of shirts that don't fit me comfortably, uh, and I long to wear them. I like them. They're really nice. I, I bought them when I was a little thinner, and, and they're really beautiful. So I'm thinking maybe I should just you know, throw out the, the comfortable shirts and force myself to wear those until they're comfortable by my changing my eating behavior. What do you think? I still think that's a, that's a pretty long run. That's sort of like the grin and bear it type goal to me because you're just changing the, the outcome you're trying to achieve and making it the outcome a little bit more attractive. But the process is what stands in between you and that long-term goal. So I, I think you need probably to change the process for getting there rather than um, how big the pain is and the discomfort of not having the goal achieved. I mean, it, it might work. It's a little bit more motivation. It can't hurt, right? You're changing the incentives, yeah. but but it's still downstream. Yeah. And that's the, that's the pain of present biases. It's all about what's right in the here and now and what's rewarding instantly. And you can't instantly shed pounds in order to be right. in a comfortable shirt. And so I think, I don't think that will, I don't think that's the optimal way to solve it. 
Let me try but another. If you try it, let me know. Maybe we can run a study together. Yeah, and yeah. See if it- that'd be awesome. Right. Because <laughs> the other way, of course, you know, I always like the Kingsley Amos line from One Fat Englishman, uh, which is a totally tasteless book, by the way, that that would be, I don't even know if they, they should, it, I'm surprised it hasn't been canceled, but he, he, he says in there, inside every fat person is a fatter person trying to get out. And I, you know, I think about, well, could, why don't I just buy more comfortable clothes and, and just don't worry if I gain a little weight, right? So that, that tension is, is, is always there. You can, but that raises this other question, which I wanted to ask you, which is I sometimes wonder whether there's just a fixed amount of willpower in my life or in anyone's life. Um, so for example, I, I keep kosher. I don't eat pork. I love pork. I, I, I love lobster, but I don't, I don't eat it. I used to, but then I decided to not eat it anymore. And it's easy. I don't say now when I pass uh, a, a barbecue restaurant, oh, I want to go in there. I'm just, it's gone. But I worry that that just, I just squeezed out <laughs> the willpower into a different area, like how much I eat at such and such an event because I can, right? Because it's, it's kosher, say. And I think that uh, I worry that, you know, whatever, whenever we can get some self-control in this corner of our life, our need to, to misbehave spills over somewhere else. Have you ever heard, is that a thing in, in, in your work? You ever heard of that? So I will say that um, there was a theory. I mean, it still exists. The theory is still there um, of self-control as being like a muscle that you mm-hmm. could strengthen through practice and yeah, then that's what worn you- out through repeated use. Um, that theory has been debunked through yeah. the replication crisis. <laughs> yeah. So um, there's really no evidence supporting that model, though it's very it's very appealing as a model, but but it doesn't seem to be borne out by data. Um, what does seem to be true is that fatigue matters. So when we're really tired, it's harder to do the right thing. But that's different than like self control itself. Um, being depleted by, you know, well, first I resisted the temptation to use my phone when it was when I was supposed to be focused on a meeting, and then I resisted the temptation to eat the pizza and had salad for lunch, and then I resisted the temptation to skip the gym and I went and exercised. That does that. It does not seem like self control exertion adds up to extra self control exhaustion. So I think you know I don't write about that in the book, even though it was a very popular theory a decade ago, because it it doesn't seem to be right. You, but. So you, but does it go the other way, right? So your point, which I think your the refutation is that just because you're good at this self control thing here doesn't mean you're going to be good over there. You haven't generated a general ability. But is it also the case that I misunderstand what you just said? Is it also the case that after self controlling all this other stuff, I go out and and do something horrific because I've I've I've, I've stifled myself all day? No, that there's no evidence of that. That either. So it doesn't. No, okay. there's no evidence that if you stifle yourself all day, then you're going to need to indulge at the end okay. of the day. And and um, so I do not study individual personality traits. I've always sort of studied like the situation. How can we change the situation? What are the, the tools and techniques that an individual can use? But um, my friend, Angela Duckworth, who's a, a brilliant psychologist at the University of Pennsylvania, who I get to work with sometimes, um, she has studied self-control as a personality trait and looked mm-hmm. a little bit at, you know, if you have self-control in one walk of life, like you're really good at getting to the gym, yeah. um, how does it translate to some other walk of life? Like, will you be really good at studying? And uh, the correlation is not very high across domains is what she's told me is the takeaway, which I think is really interesting. And, and by the way, like 
it's part of, it's true of me. Like I have great self-control when it comes to my work. I'm not so self-controlled when it comes to my diet. Um, and I think there's lots of people where we can point to like an area where we're really self, I'm not so self-controlled when it comes to yelling at my five-year-old. Uh, there's areas where we're good and where we're bad and we struggle with different things. It's part of why I also find the study of change so interesting because like I haven't met a person yet who said to me, I've got it all figured out in every part of my life and I don't need this. Yeah. Uh, it feels like there's, there's use in it for everyone because we're all, we've all got our foibles. Yeah. Angela Darkworth is past Econ Talk guest. You can listen to her talk about grit. Those of you who want to learn more, it's in our, our archive. We'll put a link up to it, uh, to this episode as, as well. You mentioned the replication crisis. Um, to take an extreme version of it, you know, um, I'd quote John Ioannidis, another past econ talk guest who talked about this. You know, most published results are false. That was his claim. It's a theoretical paper. I thought it was a silly idea. I think he's kind of right. Um, how do you deal with that as a, certainly someone who's, who, who's giving people advice, not just in your book, but as, you know, as a consultant, knowing that some of the studies, and maybe more than some, are not reliable. They, they've been debunked, refuted, didn't hold up, didn't replicate. Well, first, I didn't put any studies that I believe are unreliable into my book. And um, in fact, took some out as I discovered, you know, learned things that, that made me question them. So I tried to be pretty careful, which doesn't mean that it's all perfect. But, sure. but um, you know, that, that was really important to me to, uh, I, I will say I've sort of been at the center in some ways of watching the replication crisis unfold. I'm in a department at Wharton with, um, well, previously two of my colleagues who were leading a lot of the work to change the way that uh, behavioral science is done. So Joe Simmons and Uri Simonson yeah. uh, have been like studying p-hacking and problems with the way that psychologists do statistical inference. I think it's so important. I'm so glad that we're getting things cleaned up. Um, and I guess I will say, I, I, I think there are plenty of things that aren't true, but uh, there's also lots of things that do replicate and are really robust. And I've tried, like, for instance, present bias that replicates. Commitment devices are valuable. That replicates. And, and it's not shocking that so, some of the things replicate that do because... Um, Honestly, my sense is a lot of the things that don't replicate are the things that look like magic yeah. in the first place, right? And, sure. and um, so, you know, when you constrain yourself, <laughs> when you incentivize yourself to behave differently, like better things happen. Uh, so I, I tried really hard uh, when writing the book, I guess I will just say, there, to, to stay away from anything that felt or smelled like magic. And I, I think I'm sure there will be something in the book that doesn't replicate because almost certainly there's always something. There's a lot of studies in there. I think about um, a seventh of the pages are, are my reference section. Uh, but I, I, I stand by, in general, the themes are, are so robust and the things I focused on, I think are, you know, many, many, many studies have shown them to be true. So hopefully, hopefully there's not much in there that people should be worried about. Well, commitment devices are old, right? They go back to at least as far as Homer and Ulysses yes. tying himself to the mast because he was afraid that when he heard the sirens, he would steer the boat toward the rocks. And so um, he had his crew people, his crew, crew, the crew people. I think they were all men. Sorry. He had their crew. I think they were too, yeah. But, but the people who were steering the boat, 
He had them wear earplugs. I don't know how what he used for wax. Them. Wax. Okay. They plugged their ears with wax. But he tied it's himself. A great story. To, yeah, he tied himself to the mast. He had them bind him, commit him to not uh, being able to steer the boat, so they could enjoy the sound of the sirens, but not end up uh, crashing. Uh, it's a very uh, powerful metaphor, of course, that I don't think has, um, as you say, has it, it stood the test of time and it stands up in the results. But you know, I think there are a lot of a lot of challenges in the psychology literature. We had Brian Nozick on the program, another name, another person who's been you know at the forefront mm-hmm. of this, uh, and and as well as, as well as Andrew Gellman, who with Simonson, uh, Simons and and Simonson. Simmons and Simonson Simmons. and Simonson yeah. have, have worked on this this issue. Uh, it's hard to understand human beings. It, it's just, um, and we have an urge to publish. I think it's a big. I think it's a serious problem. But as you say, we're going to find out more as we go forward. Yeah, and and things are you know methods are getting better. I think pre-registration, which means basically putting up a plan in advance of you know th- these are the hypotheses I have. This is what I will test. Is growing in popularity. It's something that um, the research center I run, the Behavior Change for Good Initiative, now does for every project we do. Um, and I think you know the norm of also publishing things that don't work is growing a bit. We yeah. at the center that I run, we um, we've been pioneering a method we call a mega study, where we uh, instead of testing a single insight at one at a time, we test say dozens of hypotheses simultaneously on the same outcome over the same time frame um, to try to figure out you know, what actually works, uh, accelerates the speed of science, but also actually makes it easier to publish the null results along with the positive Brilliant. Uh, and, and get that all out there. Um, it has its own challenges because, of course, you know, the outliers, the things that look best, like they're skewed and they're misre- there can be misrepresentation as in any meta-analysis. But, um, but you know, I, th- I think science will get, is getting better. It's already gotten tremendously better in the next, in the last 10 years. I think the next 10 years will improve even further. Or it could go the other way. You know, that, that's the, the question. I, I, I worry that, that much of this work in, in behavioral, whatever you want to call it, economics or behavioral you know, psychology is um, it's just too complicated. You know, a lot of the, the, as you say, a lot of the magic, you know, stand this way and you'll change your life. Um, it's always going to appeal to us. And I, I think the challenge, of course, is, is – well, I was going to say something else, actually. You know, there's something to be said for maybe there's a placebo effect here, right? So even though it's a bad study, <laughs> if you think it's true, maybe it'll help you change your life. Have you thought about that? I think that? that's totally right. You know, placebo effects are one of the things that are insanely robust. And I write about yeah. how to use them in the book. <laughs> and absolutely, you know, if you believe that standing like Superwoman is going to make you do better in your job interview, you know, stand like Superwoman before your job interview because it probably will help you. Confidence is important and um, it's not going to hurt. It's probably not going to change your life. <laughs> yeah, and and I think we should be honest about what you know what the data bear out and so on, right? Like I'm okay with giving people sugar pills if there's nothing else we can give them. Um, but but I also think you know if someone asks, we should be honest about what the science says about why that works. But anyway, placebo effects are fascinating. One of the, um, one of the studies I talk about in the book that I absolutely love is the study showing that um, when Ho- housekeepers and hotels were given the information that their 
housekeeping was equivalent to getting the CDC's recommended amount of exercise each day. When they're told one group is told that another group isn't, there's literally a physiological difference. And, um, and that group ends up losing more weight over the next month, their blood pressure drops, they have all these positive effects. And, you know, it's not, it's not magic. It's that they believe this is good for them. And like, you can see, you can imagine how you, someone once said that to me about moving into my townhouse that, oh, it's so great. Like walking up and down the stairs, it's passive exercise. And you learn that and you lean into it. I'm like, oh, oh, I'll run down from the roof deck and get the, you know, ketchup that we left. Like that's exercise. Wait, let me actually, you know, do an extra load of laundry. That's exercise. So once you recognize and sort of think about things differently, you behave differently. And that can be a really useful tool. Yeah, I'm really skeptical about that one, by the way, actually, on the housekeeper one. I, I, I just find that um, I find that unlikely to persist uh, and to be replicated. I, it I, may I, be unlikely to persist. That's it. That's only true. And you should I'm going to say, uh, Ali, I should say Ali Crum, who's um, down the street from you at Stanford would, and in the psych department, I think, did that really interesting work. It's a small effect, which is and it's a very strong finding. Uh, which seems plausible to me that over a month, if you have a different mentality about the opportunity to get exercise at your job, that that could that could add up to a losing a pound. Uh, I, it's it's not like she's saying these people are going to suddenly, you know, turn into Baywatch models or Olympic so, athletes. Yeah, Olympic athletes, yeah. right? Yeah, it, it seems like plausible in effect size, and there's lots of other studies showing the placebo effect, which is all this is really, right? So. Well, let's talk about but confidence. Anyway, she'd be a great person to talk to, and she's yeah. brilliant. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, you're, you're doing a great job today. You're giving me all these extra guests. I appreciate it. Um, let's talk about confidence. Pleasure. Let's talk about confidence and overconfidence. I think that's, you know, it's a fascinating um, area that culturally we got, as a, as a society, we get really into self-esteem with the idea that it boosted productivity and other things. I'm not surprisingly, I'm skeptical about that, but but it, it was a commonly held belief. And you're you have a, a very subtle and nuanced uh, description of the role confidence plays in our lives. So so talk about that because I think you know obviously to be helplessly insecure is not is helpless, <laughs> and to be overconfident and overbearing is unbearable. So <laughs> how do you think about that? So there's this delicate balance. There is, like most um, things in life. Yeah. And, and it's funny because I was just saying like, I'm not a personality. I, I know very little about personality psychology, but, but in this case, I would say, and, and I still know very little about personality psychology. I'll stick with that. This is one of those cases where I do think like, it depends on who you are and what your challenges are. And I think um, there are people for whom the reason they can't achieve their goals is that they don't believe they can. Uh, and, and there's different ways. If that's, if that's, the challenge someone's facing, if you're coaching them, if you're their, you know, their teacher, their mentor, uh, their supervisor at work, being aware of that and then thinking about what are the ways that I can support building their confidence is going to be really important. And if you individually feel like you can't achieve something, you're not going to try. And so, you know, being aware that that's going on and that, that you can tackle it is important. So in the book, I talk about a few different things. One, one of my favorite insights is how much our peers matter. And how much they inform our uh, beliefs about what's possible, especially peers who we identify with because they resemble us in some way. You know, they're they're in our field and they're similar age and maybe similarly in other demographic ways or have a similar background. Um, and and we look at them and see what they can accomplish, and that informs what we think we can accomplish. We look at the techniques they're using to accomplish their goals, and sometimes we 
through osmosis or deliberate emulation, start using them too. And uh, so I think that's actually a, a really powerful insight. I talk about the work of Scott Carell, an economist at UCSD, showing the roommate you end up with in college affects your grades. If you get somebody who had really high score on the verbal SATs, you end up performing a bit better in in um, in classes that if you didn't, uh, I think that's such an interesting insight and, and it can inform the way we choose the people we surround ourselves with and the people, uh, we surround ourselves can build our confidence and build our, frankly, our competence too. Because again, part of what happens when we surround ourselves with the right peers is that we, uh, we recognize what's working for them. I think we should be, frankly, more deliberate about that kind of emulation. It's one of the things I've found most useful in my own life. So this is, again, you were saying, like, you like temptation modeling because it related. For, the, for me, one of the ways I've um, gotten the most done is by looking at role models and saying, like, well, how do you do all these things? You Talk to me about your life hacks. And then very deliberately trying to copy and paste them. And I think too few people do, in fact, done some research showing just telling people that go copy and paste is useful. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I think that's a little complicated. I, I'm reminded of my um, uh, graduate advisor Gary Becker, who was a freshman at Princeton. Intending, a tough graduate. That's a high. That's a high bar. Well, yeah. He whether he was good for my self conference or not's a complicated <laughs> question. I, you know, he. I won't go into it. But um, when he was a freshman, he wanted to be a math major. And after his, uh, I was a Princeton undergrad too, and thought maybe math. And yeah. then I looked at, then I learned about math at Princeton. <laughs> so well, I relate. Well, but his roommate did a lot better than he did, and on the some exam that they took together, and in some class, and he said, "Well, this isn't for me. Obviously, I'm not that good at it." Lucky I'll, for the ec- economics field. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and math's lost. It turned perhaps. out well for us. Yeah, I think so, but and, and for me, but. But it turns out his roommate, I forget his name, but he won, went on to win a Fields Medal, which is the equivalent of the Nobel Prize. He wasn't like oh a red, wasn't a that's, that's quite a room. <laughs> right? Well, think about that, though, that his – he That's like Tommy Lee Jones and Al Gore at Harvard, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, except in academia. But think about how uh, – interesting. But think about how it didn't enhance his – he didn't aspire higher after Absolutely. his he got He shot down, which was a shame, maybe. Who knows? Yeah, but. I, that's so fascinating. Well, first of all, I think it turned out well for everyone. Yeah. Gary Becker, sure, sure. obviously, you know, thank goodness. <laughs> right. and, yeah. and, and by the way, like um, the Becker-Murphy model of habit formation has been hugely influential to the way I think about hmm. habits and um, do my work. But, okay, that is neither here nor there. Yeah, absolutely. So actually, one of my favorite follow-up studies by Scott Carell that I talk about to the roommate paper um, is what happened when he tried to engineer better outcomes for students at um, West Point by actually assigning roommates strategically. Mm-hmm. So he, he had this result that random assignment to a roommate who'd done better on their verbal SATs seemed to improve your performance, uh, recognize that there was this opportunity. Some kids drop out of West Point. How can we help the low performers stay in school and do better? So he came up with this algorithm will assign the top performing uh, or the, you know, incoming class folks who look like they're going to be stars with roommates who are at risk of dropping out. And then the stars will help their roommates not drop out by pulling them up. And then we'll just put the middlers together because they don't need help. They're, they're okay. Um, he happily, thankfully, did this as an experiment. He's a scientist. He, he thought he was pretty sure he had this great idea, but he wanted to test it. He tested it for two years in a row and both years in a row it backfired. And the big reason that it seemed to backfire is that it created uh, 
too big of a gap in those in those roommate pairs, you know, they, they couldn't relate to each other. Um, the low performers ended up sort of on the hallway, hanging out with the other low performers because yeah. they didn't want to talk to these superstars. And, and um, it actually, it was worse because there was no cohesion and you formed these bubbles. And anyway, we could talk about the current media yeah, but, environment and like, yeah. and how all these things happen with bubbles. But so that was bad. And it feels like, I think the story you're telling in this case might be a similar example. Like you want to surround yourself with peers who will stretch you, but not too much. And that's a, then there's this, this like tricky, well, how do I figure out what's too much yeah. and what's not? I think, you know, there's more science to be done, but it seems clear if someone, if you're looking at someone and you're going, oh my God, they're just like out of reach. It's not a good role model. It's not a good person to emulate. You want to be around peers who stretch you a little bit, but who feel like their goals are within reach. I can emulate that. I could accomplish that. And then there's other techniques for thinking about, well, how do you build confidence so that that peer group, you believe you can fit into that peer group, but it's a tricky thing about social norms. And I think that's a great, I've never heard that story of Gary Becker. I'm going to reuse it. Yeah. Uh, It's fascinating. Thank you for sharing it with me. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, and, I, and I do relate having been afraid of math after starting out at Princeton and thinking it might be my thing. Oh, it's, it's an intense, yeah. an intense place to study math. But, but I think the, you know, this issue of whether to shoot, not to shoot too high or not to, you know, depress yourself because your roommate's so talented. And it's really a question of knowing yourself. Obviously, there's nothing wrong with, you know, lip, rooming with somebody who you know you can't equal, but you still could be inspired by, you, you know, uh, you might not want to copy their life hacks because they don't have to study for the exam. They get an A anyway, right? And you try that and you get a C. So you learn about- Or like uh, an F for me, but Yeah, anyway. exactly. Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> you might get a C. <laughs> no, I know what you mean. Um, but I think that's, I think a lot of, of these challenges of, of self-control, mastery, motivation, uh, they- they start with knowing where, as you, you talk about it in your book, you have to know, you, you should learn about what you struggle with. What are your demons? What is going to derail you? And think about what can what help you. And I think, you know, the one size fits all. Pick a roommate who's better than you, so you'll do better is, is a bad advice. But learning what you can, given your own particular situation from such a person, can be helpful. Yes, absolutely. And um and uh, so I think one thing that I have done in my life that I think can be useful is finding peers who you admire, who you look up to, um, and thinking about ways that you can actually coach each other. So I have, I call it an, we, we call it actually a no club, but it's really an advice club mm-hmm. of three women who are all, you know, now tenured professors at top business schools, all with the ambition to continue contributing on research and and lead in other ways as well. And uh, we'd read about this work by Linda Babcock, who's an economist at Carnegie Mellon. In fact, talked to her a lot about it, showing that women get saddled with a lot of office housework and they take on a lot of administrative duties that are not rewarded. And this is not great. Women need to learn to say no more. It'd be great if they weren't asked as much, but anyway, there's two sides of it and you can, you could be self-reliant and say no. So she had formed a no club uh, with other women who are facing similar challenges so they, they could run ideas by each other and say, like, should I do this? How do I say no? So I formed a similar one. And it's been amazing um, in, in many ways. One, I learned from my peers immense 
amounts about what what they're saying no to, what's acceptable to say no to, how to say no. But I've actually also learned by giving advice Mm -hmm. to these other women about um, what I think sort of my values are. Uh, I have built my confidence that I can figure out what makes sense and what doesn't. And sort of after I give them advice on something, I want to follow through. I don't want to be hypocritical if I get a similar opportunity. So I do think um, that's another way we can use our peers. It builds our confidence when we mentor and coach others. It helps us introspect about what works, helps us learn from what works for them. And I think, I think we should probably be more deliberate in the ways that we coach each other and, and work together to achieve our goals. You know, that's just a great example, I think, of, of a it's not exactly the focus of, of your section on this in the book, but I, I think of, you know, you, ch- you choose in many situations in life, you're, you're forced into association with people, whether you like them or not, whether they're good for you or not. But most of life, we choose our peer groups. We choose who to be influenced by and who to influence. And I think in the area of morality, much more than say productivity, it's extremely important. So saying, Having a group of people who you share the things you've turned down that you realized were unethical, as long as you don't brag about it too much, I think is a healthy thing. Or notice, or surrounding yourself with people that you know who who say are givers uh, rather than takers is is just a good a good is good advice. A lot of times, those takers are very entertaining, and we like being around them partly because their person they're charismatic, perhaps for other reasons. But I think surrounding yourself with givers helps you become a better giver. And, and that's just it, that's an ironic twist on the no club. It's more of a yes club for doing the right thing. But it's the same idea. It's it's the idea that you can reinforce things that you want to reinforce about yourself. It's not quite uh, a commitment mechanism, but it's an implicit one through social pressure. Absolutely. And again, this is all structuring your environment and your environment is also your social group to set yourself up for success. So I, I think I, I couldn't agree more with everything you just said. And I love the morality angle. I totally agree with that. Let's talk about the power of soft commitments um, as opposed to harder ones. You know, tying yourself to mask is one thing. But, um, you know, one way we commit softly is we tell people we're going to do something. I'm going on a diet. You know, that's way when when I'm in front of that person, I'm less likely to take out the half gallon of ice cream with a spoon and and get started. Uh, But there are many more interesting ways that we might use that. And I think it's underused. Uh, that phenomenon. So talk about doctors and prescriptions and antibiotics that you do in the book, because I thought that was such an interesting example um, of the potential for these, this kind of idea. Yeah, I love that study. It's by um, Noah Goldstein and Craig Fox and Jason Doctor, but a big crew out in um, the UCLA USC area. And they were they noticed that lots of doctors were prescribing antibiotics for things they shouldn't have been, like sinus infections. And this is sort of, it is related to temptation because you're a doctor, you're seeing this patient, they're not feeling well, they're, you know, and they want something. Give me, give me. <laughs> yeah. And uh, anyway, we haven't normalized giving them the sugar pill so they get the placebo effect. That's another part of our conversation. So they want, they want the antibiotics. You know it's not recommended. In fact, the more you prescribe antibiotics, the more antibiotic resistance becomes an issue. Um, it can even like cause nasty side effects and it doesn't help with things like sinus infections, but you want to give them something. And so a lot of doctors do. The antibiotic prescription rate for things that are not advisable is very high. So they teamed up with some medical practices in the Los Angeles area to run an experiment using soft commitment to try to get doctors to 
to find a way to be more successful in resisting that urge. What they did is um, some doctors were randomly assigned to be asked to sign a, a letter, basically pledging, I will not prescribe antibiotics for these unnecessary conditions, and then post those in their waiting rooms so that patients would also see those when they came in for a visit. And they found that that really substantially reduced um, those doctors' prescriptions of antibiotics for un unnecessary cases over the following um, months. And I think, you know, hard commitments do seem to be stronger in general, but they're not always feasible. I don't know how we would I guess you could find doctors for every time and they could sign up voluntarily to be fined every time they did that, but I don't know how many would opt in. Uh, this is something that was very low cost and, and very potent. And so, you know, we can think about ways that we can publicly commit in front of people we care about, the more formal, the better. Uh, and that, that may be one way that we can use the power of soft commitment to achieve more. Yeah, it's it's so appealing because it's cheap, right? We don't have to monitor. It's self-monitoring. It's a form of of self-monitoring, a pledge, a commitment like that. Um, I, of course, they don't always work. When they sit on the wall for a long time, you stop seeing them, just like the warning on the you know the wine bottle about heavy machinery and pregnancy. I think after a while, you just literally your bot your your brain stops taking it in. Uh, I, th I even think that's true scientifically. I feel like I should make a joke now about when were you pregnant and you drank too much, but anyway. <laughs> and drove the tractor. I was I was pregnant. And then you drove the with the, with the wine the on the tractor. I knew I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> I think of cigarette the sort of warnings on cigarettes, which I think have been proven they're maybe useful for preventing people from starting to smoke, but not very helpful if you're already smoking. If I'm remembering the research correctly. But this whole idea of a pledge, you know, I, obviously, you know, we talked earlier about Yom Kippur and other you know ways that we we start to imagine ourselves as being possible agents of change for our own lives. And in a pledge, you know, writing something down would seem to have the potential to have an impact. Uh, I, we have I've not done this with my wife, but a re you know a remarriage. Or what, I forget what they call it. A re recommitment, recommitment ceremony. ceremony. Right? People yeah. do these things as a way to publicly bind themselves, but not in a legal or, or regulatory way, but in a a way of of saying so. And, and I guess the risk reminds a little bit of. Um, uh, the way businesses will use a, um, a mission statement, right? In theory, a mission Absolutely. statement's a soft commitment. Um, and yet, of course, it's often just talk. It doesn't have teeth. Yeah, it, it doesn't, doesn't have, have teeth. teeth. So talk about that trade-off. Obviously, teethless, teethless uh, biting is, is very cheap, but it also doesn't hurt so much. So yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm a fan of hard commitment. I think it's underused because the teeth do really add to the potency uh, and, and to the success rates in general. Um, but it's not always something that people feel they can take the risk of the bad outcome. And, and so I think that as a backup, soft commitment can work. And I, I think the study in particular with doctors was really, was very successful and suggests that maybe there, you know, if we, if it's a pledge and it feels professional, it feels linked to our professional identity, it's public to, large groups of other people um, whose respect is critical to our career outcomes. That may be, you know, a, a way that we can make soft commitments that are more powerful than, you know, if you tell your spouse and your spouse will still probably like you all right, even if you eat the ice cream. Um, so, you know, I, I, I'd love to see more research done on, on what are the things that made that particular soft commitment so useful and 
what are the boundaries and how can we, how can we figure out how to harness that? Because a lot of soft commitments, like you write a goal down for yourself, you post on Facebook, they don't get you that far, uh, but they're, be- they're probably better than nothing. And then I guess I'd say, I hope the other tools in the book would be used in concert to make you a lot more likely to succeed. Well, I think the point you just made about peer groups is really interesting, the professionalism, right? So if I sign that commitment on my own idea and I post it in my waiting room as a way of making myself aware of it as a doctor, it's probably not as effective as the doctors in a practice all posting it, having a conversation every two weeks or a month about how we're doing on our commitment. And, oh, yeah, I, I, I broke down the other day and I shouldn't have done it, but I gave a prescription for something. I think that that the combination of those two is a little bit like your temptation. Social bond, like, norms are yeah. also in there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yes. No. And and using a lot of these ideas in concert is obviously a good idea if we want to make them more potent. I, I think there's another piece to this I think that can help, which is um, your, your point about professionalism gets at it a little bit. Uh, I, I think about Agnes Callard's work on uh, aspiration, which we talked about on the program here. You know, my favorite mission statement, it's actually a motto, uh, is, is the Ritz-Carlton's. The Ritz-Carlton's motto is, ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen. Now, in the Ritz-Carlton, if you're lost in the hall and you turn to any employee and say, where's the such and such ballroom? I, I can't find it. They are not supposed to point and say, oh, it's down that hall, take a right and then a left. They're supposed to escort you because, of course, ladies and gentlemen, serving ladies and gentlemen would take you, make sure you got there. And I think there's something aspirational about that slogan. It's not just we shall provide the best customer service. It's here's who we can be. And I think when I think back to that pledge about the the doctors and the antibiotics, I think how you word the pledge and how you think about it, if it if it heads you toward professionalism and um being a better self, I think maybe is uh, is the way to make them more effective. Maybe. I love that. That's really interesting. And it also relates to this identity and how important identity is, which by the way, I think is understudied. <laughs> I talk a little bit about it with fresh starts and those shifts um, that we have in identity, but um, I think I'd love about that. to see more research on that. Talk about identity and, and why that's important. Well, theoretically, why it's important is, you know, when you have that hat on and it comes with a whole script, like what are the, we're both professors, you know, what, what, what is in the professor script? We're supposed to be intellectual. We're supposed to be, you know, maybe every, every once in a while, like a little disorganized <laughs> with our heads in the clouds. Um, but we're caretakers of our students, um, caring deeply about their outcomes. It, it just comes with this whole list of attributes that, and you step into that role um, and, and I think, you know, there are many different identities as athlete, as parent, mm-hmm. um, scientist, uh, and, yeah. and when you have uh, the right hat on with the right set of roles, I, it does seem like it cha- can change behavior. I do not feel like there's as much research on this as I'd like to see. I actually have, you know, spent some time trying to read, like, what is the evidence identi- on identity? And there's some labeling studies that have been done, not all post-replication crisis, I should note, uh, you know, things like, you know, you label someone as a voter instead of someone who votes. And it seems mm-hmm. like maybe that increases their likelihood of going and actually 
casting a ballot, for instance. So there are some small, subtle studies along those lines, but it seems like such an important and powerful idea, these roles that we take on. And I think and I think there's room for a lot more research to be done on it. There's sort of an identity economics area that has, has become interesting to some folks of late uh, that I also hope will will take off. Well, I'm thinking about Yuval. There's more unknown than known. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I'm thinking about Yuval Levin, um, whose book, A Time to Build, is about how people have betrayed their, you could call it their duty, their obligation. I would think of it as their identity, say, as journalists, academics, uh, politicians, uh, which really shows the, the limits of this approach, or at least that we need to rebuild some of these identities. You know, I think. Obviously, right. when, when you're living in a world where your your publication is going to go out of business and you're going to lose your job if you don't generate a lot of clicks, you're prone to some headlines about, say, the coronavirus and the vaccine that are close to lies. And yet, you know, the vaccine doesn't work for da, 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 and people click. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. And they realize, oh, this is like oh, after four people didn't. I, I just it's unbelievable. And so. Yes, journalists used to have this identity as truth seekers, objective truth seekers. Now I think they're much more likely to be partisan on either side of the divide. I think that's a tragedy to some extent that's explained by the incentives, but you'd like to think that that, that identity, sense of identity could overcome that. It isn't right now. I, I agree with you, I, and I think identity is not nearly strong enough to overcome strong incentives and like we shouldn't expect it to be. So we need to set up better systems and, and you know, identity is only one piece of any puzzle. Uh, but, you know, think about the Hippocratic oath. Yes. Yeah, doctors still make bad decisions, but on the other hand, uh, it probably helps that they take that Hippocratic oath. So it's, it, we, we want to get all the pieces of the puzzle, right? I think that's another key takeaway. Like you can't say like, oh, I checked this box, you know, like I got, I got the identity down or I have soft commitments and, and then like just neglect everything else. Like the incentive scheme is completely wrong. The structure of the choice is completely wrong. So it has to be, we have to be attentive to all of these components. Yeah. Uh, let's close with, um, with where we started, which is the seductiveness of, the idea that I can I can change my life if I have the right life hack. Your subtitle is uh, let's see, where is it? The science it's of a, getting from where you are to where you want to be. Yeah, and and part of what I've been thinking about a lot lately is how to figure out where you want to be. I think in our culture, this is not a criticism of your book because obviously, no matter where you want to be, it'd be good to get there in theory. <laughs> Right, I'm agnostic on that. Exactly, end goal in the book, right. you are, and 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 most of us would unanimously agree that we want to exercise more, eat healthier, be more better friends. A thousand things we could think of that that we wish we could do a better job on. But I do think in our culture right now, there there's a overwhelming urge for the app or the algorithm or the life hack that will solve problem X, forgetting that. There's this big meta problem out there called how to live. Uh, it's true that if you want to live well, you do have to control your urges and master yourself a little bit. But I just, I'm just curious how you, th if you think about that much. I think it's a great issue. It's, it's one of the things that has made me so interested in fresh starts because I think. Uh, one of the reasons fresh starts are interesting is those are moments that tend to disrupt the day to day when we're just sort of plugging along, not thinking deeply about who we want to be. Um, 
and lead us to think bigger picture. And I think we need more disruptions and more effort put into what, what should my goals be rather than the list of goals that everyone has, you know, oh, less time on social media and, and more exercise and so on. Like, what are the really important things? Um, I hope the book can help with both the important things and the less important ones. And I, I do, I, I'm agnostic on it. I try to present the science that's useful regardless of what a goal is. But I completely agree with you that um, I think we can find more meaning in life if we reflect more deeply about what really matters. And, you know, there's lots of great research supporting the importance of meaning and work. It, it makes you more productive if you see meaning behind your job, behind what you're doing. Uh, so it, it has all these benefits to happiness. Uh, so I do hope people will use the book to achieve meaningful goals rather than goals that may not really make them happier. Which is why, by the way, I don't think you should worry about the 10 pounds. My guest today has been the kind and insightful Katie Milkman. Her book is How to Change. Katie, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you so much for having me. This was a really fun conversation. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.